0: is the Stuck Mike Avcast, an aviation podcast by the pilotreport.com about learning to fly, living to fly, and loving to fly. Now, here are your co-hosts, Victoria Neuville, Rick Felty, Carl Valeri, and Len Costa. Well, hello everybody,
1: and welcome to episode number three of the Stuck Mike Avcast. I'm Len Costa, and today I'm joined with uh, Carl Valeri and Rick Felty. How are you guys doing today?
2: Great, great, Len. Good to be here.
1: Doing great. Today we've got uh, quite a a long list of things that we like to cover, so I guess we'll just go ahead and dive right into it. Now,
0: entering cruise flight.
1: Rick, the first thing we'll get to is uh, your item about, oh, I'm sorry, Carl,
2: about uh, staying safe in the traffic pattern. Yes, yeah, Len, it's interesting how... A lot of times what, uh, when we're in the pattern, especially at a non-towered airport, I've heard on the radio and I know, boy, this can really get under people's craw. They're, they're calling like five miles out or they're calling over the red barn or they're calling five miles east and they're in reality five miles west. Well, I recently put an uh, article on my website that said, you know, just b- believe what you uh, see and not what you hear. It's very, very important in the pattern in a, n- a non-towered airport to look outside the window. And the other thing is we need to, as pilots, make sure that when we make a call, we make the correct call. Boy, I was really embarrassed the other day. I was coming into uh, Albert Whitted Airport, and I, I give them a call and say, I'm 10 miles to the west And, of course, it's a radar environment. He says, "Uh, are you 10 miles to the west? Are you sure? I said, oh, no, I'm 10 miles to the east. Now, in that radar environment, they know where I am. But when you're in a non-towered airport, you're making your own calls, you need to tell people, hey, this is where I am. And the other thing you need to do in a radar or a towered environment is listen for your call sign. Also listen for other people's call signs Mm -hmm. and what everybody else in the pattern is doing. Um, recently had a student that had that issue where he was departing, uh, the, actually Albert Witted also, and uh, they kept calling a Grumman. Well, he was a Cessna. And uh, finally he says, are you calling Cessna? And he said, uh, oh, yeah, yeah, Cessna. He says, there's traffic over here at 3 o'clock. And he says, oh, okay. Well, this happens uh, to us too, Len, at the, at the airlines where we need to constantly be listening, especially on an approach at an airport where you're you have many aircraft taxiing to the runway and taking off we listen in and say okay that person was cleared onto the runway and that person's cleared to taxi, okay, if we can do that, as you get more experience listening on the radio and more experience talking on the radio, you'll be able to actually hear all these conversations and actually be able to, to uh, figure out where everybody is in your own mind, just like an air traffic controller does. Mm-hmm. And just one more example, I was landing in an airport uh, in New Hampshire, and I was cleared to land, and at the same time I hear a cleared for takeoff, on the same runway that I'm landing on, which is fine. He should be able to go off the runway. And then I hear him clearing another aircraft position and hold on the same runway. And I said, ooh that doesn't sound good. Mm -hmm. And so I continue in, and I I look to the person next to me and say, listen, we're probably going to need to go around here. But we continued our approach, and there was so much chatter going on because at that moment, everybody decides to pipe in and say, hey, guys, you're going to hit each other. And I I said, listen, just keep listening. Keep listening. The most important thing about communications is listening. Mm -hmm. So on the way down, of course, we weren't able to get... Uh, any type of a transmission in until the tower says so-and-so go around that was us we were told to go around and we said yeah we we kind of figured you had another aircraft on the runway and we went around went around so yes it's very important to listen up and as a matter of fact a segue for something later that i'm going to talk about a little bit sometimes it's better to not even have your radios on and uh, I have, uh, in the past, taught students that were deaf. I'm part of the Deaf Pilots Association, and uh, they, uh, I think, sometimes are the safest ones out there at non-towered airports. Because why? They have to look outside the window. Interesting. Yeah. Wow. So, yeah, <laughs> and and they they don't ever listen to people and and wonder where they are because
1: they can't. They can't. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Well, I.
1: It's interesting that you you mention a little bit about. Believe what you see and not what you hear. Just a, a short reminder: when I was when I was teaching, I always told my students that the three basic tenets of radio communication. Always tell when you're transmitting, whether it's to tower or uncontrolled. Three three things is what I told them: who you are, where you are, and what are your intentions. And that uh, generally will make up the the bulk of every radio call that you usually make.
3: Very Amen cool. Yeah. That's a good one. Yeah, and I I mean, I think I got trained that way as well. I, one of the things, I, I mean, I was going to touch on something that, I, that sort of jumps off of this topic. It continues this topic for a story I was going to tell. I don't know, if, Len, if you want me to do that Absolutely. now. Absolutely, go for it. Is, um, and this is, um, so to, the background is that I... You know had most of my training at a towered that uh, I mean as I was learning at a towered field, so I really got pretty good at that and 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 I know this is true for people you do that if you do that principally it 's the untowered field approaches that are challenging because you haven 't done them as often and I know uh, other people who have it the other way you know they 'll say the same thing, man, those towered fields are tough well I, saw so I was pretty experienced at a towered field, and I was doing a little hop from Norwood over to uh, Plymouth. Um, to the southeast, and, you know, it's a short flight, and and um, Plymouth is untowered, Norwood is towered, and so I was um, heading in, you know, and, and got the frequency, and um, my, and, it, and it was a very busy day. Plymouth is an airport that people use. It's got some nice long runways a lot of people use for practice, and on Saturdays it, and Sundays it can get crowded on, you know, nice weather days, and I think this was the end, maybe it was the last fall day that felt like it was going to be nice. It might have been the beginning of spring. I don't remember. Um but it was very busy. There were jokes about the pancakes being cheap that morning because there were so many people seemingly wanting to get in there. (laughs) And so I was listening carefully. You know, I was listening early on to start to get a sense of the amount of calls, the number of different planes that appeared to be doing whatever they were doing, you know, and starting to get a handle on where they were. And I made, so I basically what I do often is once I get a sense of it, if it's, if it feels crowded, I'll often uh, head to a position that will be where I can get the 45 approach to the to the left, if that's appropriate, left uh, downwind for the runway in use. So in this case it was out to the west of Plymouth because they were using uh, 3-3, So sort of northwest of it, and, and hanging out there listening. And I, I think I, you know, did some slow circles for a while, waiting, you know, just waiting for a little bit of room because it felt, based on what I was hearing and to, and occasionally out the window seeing, um, it felt it felt pretty busy. And eventually, it felt like there was a gap. You know, I made my call. Uh, about entering the the forty five and and uh and everything seemed to be fine. I was tracking everyone on the radio um, it seemed crowded, but I kind of knew where everyone was, and it all made sense. You know there were some people staying in the pattern, so you're entering uh what they're already doing you know uh, they if they have just taken off and they're going to swing around you're trying to get in ahead of them and and make sure that's okay and I ended up on the downwind and and uh you know speeds were good i was everything was set up well, I was listening a lot and looking a lot to everything that was going on and but it's you know even at then it felt crowded but i was trying to you know expand my learning envelope and 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 get better at it and um i heard uh i suddenly heard a call that made no sense to me that was not what i expected to hear which was a um a base call i was about to turn base and i knew That there was the plane I thought was most immediately ahead of me was on short final. So that felt right. And getting off, he was going to get off the runway, that would be okay. Or I could go around. But all of a sudden, I heard a base call for that same runway. And I could not, one, it didn't make sense. I wasn't expecting to hear it. It was a plane I didn't think I'd been tracking the whole time. Um, So it sort of felt like they came out of nowhere and I couldn't see them. And, um, so I in that I was still on the down one, had not turned base. I um, exited the traffic pattern. I, I just sort of made the call for me that in that moment, I wasn't comfortable enough to proceed with what I thought was an open slot, given that someone else was sort of jumping in. I suppose I could have extended and, and tried to figure out where I was. But basically what I ended up doing was extending and heading off to the southwest to kind of circle around again and get a sense for whether you know, it made sense to try again, or was I not comfortable with this? And I guess for me, what I learned for me that day, it was a good reminder that, one, pay attention, be listening, you know, situational awareness, and don't be, you know don't be afraid to make the decision that this isn't right. This doesn't feel right for me. Um, turned out, I found out later, it not only was it crowded, there was a key section of a taxiway for Runway 33 that was being uh, re- repaired. And I think I knew part of that, But it, and it wasn't crucial to operations, but what it meant was there were taxi backs happening as well to get to take off on 3-3. So it was a very crowded day. And I guess the reason I tell the story is just, you know, as you're learning, as you're, as you're getting new experience, um, you know, don't be afraid to make those decisions that f- feel comfortable to you. So I didn't end up going. I sort of went and flew some other places and had, had a different flying day than I thought and then went back to Norwood. So I don't know if that, if you guys can identify with any of that, but I thought I'd tell that story.
2: Interesting. Oh, sure. Sure. That's, uh, you know, it, that is interesting that, that Rick, they, it, it was a good decision on your part. Do that. It just you don't feel comfortable then.
3: Yeah, it felt right. Definitely. Even afterwards, I kept hearing. The more I kept hearing, the more I thought I, I'm not, you know. And I bet you, if you have more experience at an untoured field, that close pattern with all the planes was probably okay. But for me, it felt um, a little, a little much. Even going in, and then when I got a call that threw me, I thought, okay, um, I'm not sure now of of what's out there, so I'm going to make a safer move here. So. And I was glad I did. I didn't, never really regretted it uh, mm-hmm. afterwards mm-hmm. excellent.
1: well, I guess I'd like to make a segue for uh you know for Rick, you're just talking about a good aeron- you know a good aeronautical decision making action there uh something that I wasn't intending to talk about in this episode, but I feel like it's a good place to to insert it as a similar decision yesterday while flying i uh oh, cool. i I called work. And I had to use the F word, and that F word is fatigued. Uh-huh. Um, we were, we had uh, had flown two days, Monday and Tuesday, and then had Wednesday off, and then flown um, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday. And they were all long days with early morning wake-ups, anywhere between 4 and 4.30 in the morning. Yesterday we got to the airplane, and uh, I just... I didn't feel right things weren't going smoothly I was putting things into the FMS which is the equivalent of the Jets um, GPS it's it, it does not only flight planning but weight and balance and calculations and and it, I wasn't uh, I wasn't putting things incorrectly took me about three times to get one particular number into the computer and I had omitted some other things and in addition to that reading the checklist uh, I was just kind of spaced out and not responding properly so I said to the captain, I said, "Hey, do me a favor and just watch me on this leg. I'm a little bit tired. I'm not feeling right." We got up to cruise flight, I had some coffee, things were feeling good, and uh, we got to our destination. I said, "Okay, I'm feeling all right. Let's see how the next one or two flights go." And uh, we we got to our next destination, and again, wasn't quite feeling right. So I said to myself, "Well, if uh, if I'm not feeling good on this third flight," Um, and the reason that I let this go on for so long was we weren't at um, we weren't back at our base of operations, so it would have everybody would have been stranded had I not toughed it out for for one more flight. So we got the third flight completed, and I told the gentleman that I was flying with that I probably wasn't going to be joining him for the next two flights. And it was a good thing too because when we got off the airplane, I was feeling weak and lightheaded and dizzy, and uh, so I. I told the company, I gave them a phone call, and I said, you know, I'm not safe to fly, I'm extremely tired. And uh, I actually told the gentleman that I, that I notified, I said, there's really no amount of coffee that's going to make me alert today, it's just not going to happen, and I don't feel safe. So uh, I, I made the phone call, and I said, I'm fatigued, and that was my first time in 15 years of flying that I've ever not gone for another flight due to, uh, you know, due to fatigue, due, for being, due to being
3: tired. Right. Amazing. That's, that's, that's a, I mean, uh, you guys, for me, I don't know how you, how you do the, the jobs you do, but that's a great call. It sounded like the right call for sure.
2: Yeah, yeah absolutely. That's a tough decision, Len. Boy, you know, I, and I have had to make the same decision, you know, months ago, and you're sitting there saying to yourself, do I really want to do this? And I feel so we're so mission-oriented right. that we want to get this flight off. We want to get the people to their destination. We want to go meet people. But are we really safe to fly? you know you'd never go fly if you had a beer or two right and it's the same kind of detriment to your your cognitive thinking by working say a long day or being fatigued you can't actually think straight and, gosh, you know, you may not be able to add to No, Like you were saying, I think, Len, you were telling me about this before. You just were not making any sense on the phone when you were talking to a friend of yours. And, yeah. And that's when you have to say to yourself, and I'm glad, you, you know, I applaud you for doing that, saying, hey, listen, I, I can't do this and, and I'm done.
3: And obviously, <laughs> was- obviously from the employer's point of view, it's a challenge because you want to – you, you have to operate safely, but you also have to operate. And so I get, you know, I get why it's tricky on all sides right. to make that call because you don't want to let them down. They don't want to let passengers down, but there has to be some, you know, in the GA world for renters, I always marvel at the fact that I can, you know, realistically cancel whenever I feel it's not right. right. Um, and you know, if I abuse that privilege, eventually I'm, I'm not, Renting from them anymore, but you know what I mean. They, they don't want to have an unsafe situation, so they want you to make the safe call, even though it's a business. So
2: yeah, well, Rick. I, I, now I was going to say, Rick. It, it, now that you brought that up, do you yeah. have you ever had to do that? Have you ever had to make that call yourself and said, "Hey, listen, I can't do this flight," and uh, I don't think I know because of the weather. That's one. Uh, yeah. But for any other reasons, have you ever had to do that?
3: Um, yeah, I, yeah, I did. Um, there was you know, family. Sort of. A, there's some situations less less for, for fatigue. Although there was a point, I think I get allerg seasonal allergies mm-hmm. uh, in the spring for a short period for a certain amount kind of pollen, and I think there was a time where I was fine, and then it hit midweek, and I had booked the weekend, and I was seeing how I was doing, and by the time I got up to that Saturday, it was not. You know, I, I would be. compromised and so you know and they were and they were cool about it but more so it ends up being if there's a if there's an emergency and or mostly it's it's weather but you're right i mean i've i've made it and there, you know i think the i think i've always gotten the sense from the place that i am uh, renting from that you know they want you to make the safe decision and as long as you're not booking it constantly and canceling it constantly abusing that privilege right uh that you know there's really never been a question like really you know some days day of you know um for various reasons it can happen so yeah and if and if they are it's not a good place if they're if they're starting to push you to fly that can't be a right. good situation so right
1: yeah fortunately we have sort of a similar i guess general acceptance of of using fatigue if it's not overly abused and and stuff like that it's it's similar to what you're saying you know there's not going to be much of a penalty i actually felt guilty all day. And that's why it kind of took me so long to determine that I was really ready to make this decision, because I knew that I had five flights that I needed to operate with passengers that needed to get places. Uh, What what made the decision simple is when we got back to our base of operation, there was a nice two-hour gap between the next two flights that I was supposed to operate. So I felt... That in this situation that I gave the company enough notification to hopefully find somebody to fill that void that I there created uh, And as far as I know the flights did operate um, As planned later on in the afternoon, so uh you know, but it was it was a strange thing I just I kept talking about it all morning. I don't know if I really want to do this I'm gonna leave somebody stranded. I I hate to okay. mess you guys up, but uh Right. I didn't. I didn't feel safe, and I can't believe how how long it took me to to work my way through it. But I finally made the decision, and I'm happy that I did, because I slept oh the God. entire way home, on my on well, my commute back, my flight back to to to, to the house. I mm-hmm. slept the whole way back, and then I slept like a baby last night. So it was a great yeah. decision. <laughs> Yeah.
2: Well I, I wonder, Len, if, if Rick or you or and anybody else has in in the past said to themselves that they took the other the other path and said, Oh, I'm gonna go ahead and push it and then afterwards said to themselves, boy, should I have done that? I really, maybe I shouldn't have is Mm -hmm. what the conclusion is. I'd love to hear from some of our our listeners and uh, some mail and say, hey, what's a good situation or what's a situation where you've been flying and then afterwards said, boy, I really should not have done that. Really, you know, I learned about flying from that. It's like I really should not have have actually flown that flight because I was too fatigued And, and I tell you, if any flight instructors are listening, you know, I feel for you. I know what it's like to have you know a flight school push you and try to fly broken planes and try to fly uh you know past your abilities and past your your rest periods and and trying to change your logbooks so it only shows you did eight hours and you did nine hours of instruction and you know i i know they're out there those people do try to do that mm-hmm. and uh, it's just yeah. not safe it's hard yeah. and it's tough to make that decision because you want to you want to get your flight hours in and you are you're, you're pushing yourself but uh you know if just think about it, if you have a, an accident or incident where you, you know you hurt yourself or you lose your license, you're not going to be able to fly anymore anyway
1: right 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 that right. that's what a friend told me he said, look at the back of your medical certificate. what does it say if you're not feeling uh you know to the same specifications on the day that you walked in for that medical then technically you're you're disqualified from from that medical so uh it's interesting. If if and, and if anybody wants to f- wants to submit their stories, if you go over to stuckmikeavcast.com, you can leave a comment on the blog or simply send us uh, you know a message on Twitter or StuckMikeAvcast at Gmail and uh, we'll be happy to share those stories and and, and on uh, on the next
3: episode. That's a great idea. Uh, I look forward to hearing from people. Right.
1: So there's another story, actually, from work that I wanted to share. It's, it's, it sort of also ties into Carl's idea of um, you know being aware of looking around outside when you're at the airport at your surroundings. But mine sort of goes into a, a visual approach. And uh, we were going into Canada last week. And uh, the controller had put another aircraft in front of us. So I was on the straight-in approach about 20, 30 miles out, and this other aircraft was coming in on about a 45-degree dogleg. And they wanted me to basically slow down. And as I'm I'm sequencing myself behind this airplane, speed-wise, I noticed that he's coming in at this hard angle, and he's not straightening out on final. I mean, this aircraft is driving straight to the numbers, essentially. So I started having to do my own self-imposed S-turns and slowing the aircraft down and configuring for landing. And one of the things, and this is is actually another first time for me, but I spent a little too much time concentrating outside visually on the aircraft. And on short final, I noticed that my airspeed was about eight knots too slow. Hmm. And I started to get that sinking sensation in my stomach, like, oh, gosh, I'm, you know, I'm really too slow here. So I was able to make, you know, a safe landing and recover the speed from that, but it it was a great reminder for me that not just because you're on a visual approach and this will work the same in small aircraft in Cessnas and it's you know even even in your small aircraft make sure that as much re- reference time outside of the airplane and the runway in front of you take a look inside every now and then. And one mm-hmm. of the things they actually teach us at work is for transitioning to inside or for visual approaches, the mantra that one guy actually told my sim training partner was, when you break out visual, here's what you want to do. Look inside, look outside. Inside, outside, inside. And just follow this back and forth so that you're always aware of what your airspeed is. And then Mm. outside to see where you are in relation to traffic and your visual glide path. Mm. So that was something that I learned the other day. Again, you know, make sure that I don't focus too much outside in the, uh, without taking a look at what's happening on the inside of the airplane.
3: Did you end up successful? I mean, you ended up landing in sequence as, as planned. Right. You got, you got it slow enough and you didn't have right. to do anything different. Yeah, and
1: this was kind of on short final. What I had done was uh, I was just kind of focused too much on the spacing by looking mm-hmm. at him visually. And when I looked inside, I saw that I was eight knots too slow. I made some power corrections and it was really a non event. But mm-hmm. I kind of more got upset with myself for putting letting myself get that slow um, because I, I don't like getting slow in swept wing aircraft because they especially ours mm-hmm. Embraer 145 not only is it swept wing but the wing is also mounted aft um, towards the, the, the rear of the fuselage so in absence of flying any other jet aircraft with a mid-mounted wing similar like maybe a 737 our particular airplane when it gets slow it sinks and it sinks mm. fast <laughs> so when I see that airspeed bleeding off, I don't like it whatsoever. I'm sure Carl could tell you some yeah. stories about getting too slow, but There's it's only not one radio you're
2: going usually.
1: Yeah, it, 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 <laughs> no. it goes
2: down fast. Yes. <laughs> but, uh, you know, it, it, it's interesting you brought that up because uh, that's something that, uh, you know, I have to give kudos to Bob Miller at Bob Miller Flight Training. He's, uh, I don't know if you ever heard of uh, him on the uh, on some of the uh, podcasts, and I'll try to remember the name of it, uh, but he was saying one of the things that we don't do enough of is we don't look at our airspeed. And and, uh, Rick and all our listeners, I hope that when you are on final, just like Len said, you're you're moving into the cockpit looking at that airspeed. And if it's off, you need to change it right Mm -hmm. away because you can get slow pretty quickly. We all know what our plane sounds like. I think we know at 80 knots or 60 knots or 300 knots. Sometimes we're wrong.
3: Right. Then we no, I agree. I would say that my, if there was a, if there was a gap in my training early on, it was that, that I didn't internalize the airspeeds of the pattern well enough for a while. So I was, so, so I probably wasted some, um, some training time, you know, with approaches that were too fast or, mm-hmm. or having to add power at the, at the last minute or something. And, um, somewhere the light bulb finally went off and I don't know, you know, now I would say, yeah. You know, now I get that, man, that should just, that's something that you should know and and should be, one, from sound as well as, you know, feel, but look at those numbers. And, man, if you hit those numbers that you know are right, you know, based on the conditions, you know, everything goes much, much better. And so, yeah, I'm much more aware of Mm -hmm. checking it out and going, oh, you know what, I'm, you know, you'll even hear me on the videos I make sometimes talking about the speed, getting a little slow here, and <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, so it, yeah, it's um, it's 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 cool and it's very fun. The airspeed control is so it's really fun to play with, you know, within a, within the margins and and learn what it can do, you know, and 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 how the plane you're in responds to that, you know,
2: right? Sure. Excellent. Uh,
3: so,
1: let's uh, let's let's hear here again, Carl. I wanted to learn a little bit more about the students that you've flown with with special needs
2: oh okay sure the um, yes in the past I've uh, had a a terrific opportunity to get involved with um, people that have special needs through and uh, it started with an organization called Challenge Air Um, I'm not sure if anybody's heard about that but it's a great great, uh, organization where Um, We fly children with uh, special needs, um, and what we'll do is we'll try to raise their self-esteem and uh, make them realize that they can reach out and accomplish goals that they never thought they could because of this challenge they may have, whether it be uh, 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 not being able to use their arms, their legs, uh, whether they can't uh, hear very well. And, and what we do is this. We have these events throughout the country where we have the challenge air fly-ins. And I actually was a volunteer coordinator for one down in Houston. And we will have the person that has our challenge, people with spina bifida, cerebral palsy, sit in the front of the aircraft with a pilot, a volunteer pilot, and have the parent sit in the back seat. Now, this doesn't sound like much, but it's a huge paradigm shift for both The person with the needs, the the special needs, and also the person, the the parent, because the parent is so used to doing everything for Mm -hmm. this child. And now this child is able to fly the airplane. And what we do is we allow them to get their hands on the yoke and let them fly the aircraft. We do have someone come along with us normally because uh, some of the folks with special needs uh, may have some issues while they're in flight where someone may have to attend to them. But the the neat thing about this and one of, the, one of the, the greatest things that I've ever seen happen during these events personally is they uh, there was a child who had an arm that was atrophied because of uh, non-use. Well, the pilot, uh, it was a friend of mine who was flying with her, took her arm and put it on the yoke and said, here, I want you to fly. And the mother just freaked out, said, no, 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 she can't do that. That's not her good arm. And amazingly, you can say it's a miracle whatever, she was actually able to move that arm slightly and Mm -hmm. actually move the yoke. And, of course, with the help of the the, the pilot, she actually came in and landed with the help of the pilot. And uh, since that day, they went back to their doctor and said, listen, we need to work on this arm. Uh, I, I think I think we uh, she's able to, she'll be able to use it and she wow. was able to get some use of her arm back but she, she never would have seen that before.
3: Wow, uh, that's or, really or a great story. It. Yeah, that's oh, awesome. It was
2: just it was just terrific. And you know what? Those stories you hear those all the time. Uh, uh, people that whether it's something physical, something uh, uh, mentally, that they realize, hey, listen, I can do this. I can fly. It's challengeair.org, uh, or excuse me, challengeair.com. Challengeair.com. I think you can get there by challengeair.org also, and uh, just a terrific organization the person that started this he was actually a, a fighter pilot in uh, vietnam mm-hmm. and uh, rick amber was his name and what had happened is he during had a landing accident and uh, something had failed and uh, he was landing on the i think the uss hancock mm-hmm. and uh, he became a, a paraplegic and was uh, stuck in a wheelchair and he went on Because he enjoyed tennis so much and uh, actually won the U.S. Tennis Association's uh, National Wheelchair Championship in the the men's singles. Mm -hmm. And then he said, gosh, I want to get back into flying. And he says, why can't I do this with airplanes? And he went out and he was able to fly and uh, get his license uh, using some uh, equipment that he installed in his airplane, in his Cardinal. Well, with, with that said and with Challenge Air, I said to myself, well, you know, why can't anybody fly. I've always said anybody can fly, but then all of a sudden I said, no, I started doubting myself because I said, wait a minute, a lot of these children that I've flown through these events, they will never have the chance to fly because of their their challenges that they have. Um, But there are some here that can. I think they can. So I really did a lot of research and realized that there's organizations out there which I joined. One's called the Wheelchair Aviators Association, and the other one's called the Deaf Pilots Association. And through both of these organizations, I was able to get students that uh, one of them was a a paraplegic and the other one was Uh deaf. And I was like, wow, uh, I didn't think you could get a medical. And I didn't think you could actually um, get, you know, be able to actually solo or or to, to get your license. But you know what? It turns out even a deaf pilot can get a commercial pilot certificate. Wow. And the, yes, a, a deaf pilot can get a commercial pilot certificate, but on their medical, uh, don't quote me on the exact verbiage, but they, it just has to say that they cannot operate in airspace. Hmm. That requires communications. Right. right. And, that makes uh, sense. It, it's just, and it was the neatest thing. I actually was able to do a flight, a demonstrated ability flight with a student, and we went to a towered field because they have to understand the light signals very well. And uh, so we went out there and we, <laughs> and we actually did some takeoffs and landings. And uh, what the challenge was for me communicating, but you know, hey, being, you know, coming from an Italian background, I talk with my hands anyway. <laughs> um, and, and what was funny is that I, I have this issue. And, and, it's, oh, I've always had this problem with left and right. I'll say left when I mean right, and I'll say right when I mean left. Well, my students got real frustrated with me. So in the beginning, I started to realize I'm really messing this up for people. And so what I started doing is I would put my, my hand out and put my thumb to the right and say, turn this way or turn that way. And it worked perfect because I would say, hey, turn right, and I'd be, I'd be pointing to the left. i said, you know what? I'm not even going to say anything. I'll just say turn this way. Well, mm. when I was teaching my deaf student, all I had to do was put my thumb out. I could never mess up what I said. Mm. You know, so, That's good, and 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 it was it was terrific wor- working with them. There's a couple things that are different, of course, and, and people will realize this and learn this. That you know they have to learn how to uh, recognize a stall mm-hmm. and uh, recognize the buffet. They're not going to hear the horn. They may have a light on there, mm-hmm. and uh, they're also going to have to be able to look outside. And when they're at the end of the runway, what they'll do is circle around to look to see if there's anybody in the pattern, and then take off. And uh, just realize that in an uncontrolled field, you don't need a radio. You don't True. need any type of electronics. So, you know, I flew in a Champ, and uh, we had, you know, hand propped it, had no real electronics in that. Mm. And uh, and the other group of folks that I've worked with is people with, you know, with the, the, the paraplegics. And po- uh, one individual didn't have any, uh, didn't have the use of uh, her arm or didn't mm-hmm. have an arm and uh you'd be shocked at they're excellent students they have to they have to concentrate so much that you realize that they they compensate in other ways mm-hmm. and uh you know this guy had you know I had to keep up with him he was doing great he was just <laughs> just blasting through it and uh what we did is for lessons is uh we would do uh back then when I started we had a o l and we would type messages to each other. When we do ground school, sometimes over over AOL, mm-hmm. and uh, there's all this this teletype where you can actually you call their phone, and, or call a phone number associated with them, and they would uh, the person on the one end would, uh, you would relay your message through a teletype and would come up on a screen on their phone or, hmm. or on their computer. Pretty oh. neat stuff. So, and look in the future, you know, we're going to have communications in the cockpit directly. Mm-hmm. You know, ADSB. They're going to have you know ADSB out. They're going to have the right. uh, ability to send messages to pilots. So who knows? Maybe. And this is one of my deaf students had said to me, you know, it would be really neat if I could fly IFR someday. And I right. said, you know what? Maybe someday that might happen. You never mm-hmm. know. It definitely could. I agree mm-hmm so that that was that was great for me I really really enjoyed that so
1: I might have missed earlier in the story but did you say that you've just done some like introductory flights or you know a light a lesson here and there or have you actually taken somebody through an actual certificate or rating oh,
2: no, we, I did uh, the certificate I did a private pilot for okay. uh, a deaf uh, student and then the uh, uh, the other one that I never got to finish uh, their rating but uh, later on I met up with him and he had actually uh, received his private and was working mm-hmm. towards getting his uh, commercial certificate, but just think about as far as the deaf pilot. You're wondering what's a deaf pilot going to do with their commercial? They can actually do agricultural flying and banner. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You don't need a radio for that. So what, so, what kind of what kind of challenges did you find as an instructor?
1: Did I mean <laughs> did you have? Did these associations give you some recommendations, or, or did you speak to anybody before getting involved to understand what some of your challenges would be?
2: Oh, sure. I, I actually, uh, they referred me to the, uh, the American Sign Language okay, Association, okay. and they have free courses. You can, you can get them off the Internet. Uh, there's, uh, there's all sorts of different way, things you can get, but to be honest with you, mice taught me more. Than they did, because you know it's like learning another language. If you have someone in front of you who can show right. you and talk to you, it, it's a lot easier. But uh, I I did mess up a, a bunch of symbols and I did get a little frustrated sometimes. So what I would do is I'd always bring a pad of paper in the cockpit because I can't turn to him and, and start signing, and uh, you know he can't turn to me. So what we'll do is we'll write on the pad and say yes no good job and Mm -hmm. you know it was neat you know doing the cross country you know you of course go to you know non-towered airport and um but as far as challenges it it was more uh the the fact that we couldn't communicate through speaking but most of these people if you use your mouth uh, and talk clearly. They will actually read your lips. A lot of these folks, over okay. the years, have been able to read lips. I I didn't realize that there are some people that don't sign. They can read lips, but the majority do sign. You know, ninety mm-hmm. some odd percent sign. I tell you, I I actually had a friend who used to. Uh, work with children that were both deaf and blind and had to sign using the palm of their hands. Wow. So, to me, this wasn't a challenge compared to that. Right. <laughs> you know, no just, kidding. It was like, wow.
3: <laughs> how, did, how did you um, uh, organize a positive exchange of controls? I mean, how, how did they know, you know, normally uh, there, it's, uh, it's... Th- my plane, your plane, all that stuff normally is verbal.
2: Right, right. It, it, you know, it's not that bad because if you think about it, if you know you're you're instructing and the person zones out and you say my airplane, they don't do anything. A lot of times, what I'll do is I'll grab the controls, and they'll see me grabbing the controls. That's the signal to let me have it, or I'll tap them. Well, mm-hmm. I did this. I did the same thing with this student. I actually had to do that. I'd say okay. You know, I have the flight controls, meaning, but I would, I would grab, you know, in a more, you know, a good gesture saying, okay, I have the flight controls, and then, right. but in reality, I mean, it, there wasn't many times you'd have to do that, just demonstrate, and then they do, demonstrate, yeah. and then they do. Mm-hmm. And uh, but the only the only difference there is that you really had to do the demonstration part uh, really well because uh, you know some, a lot of students will say hey let me try it you know I, I want to try it first before you demonstrate like, okay cause sure go right ahead but in this case I'd always have to demonstrate turns around a point that type of thing yeah and then yeah look and I just
3: and that's good that I get that that, that, that they can you know that there was at least an understanding that if you've taken the controls it's pretty clear you are and you know because in the, there's a safety concern there it's not it's partly like if you're in a situation where you've got to help them out. You know, you want them off those pedals and off that yoke.
2: Right, right. You know, mm-hmm. like, a,
3: like they ballooned or something you're going to really need to help with a moment mm-hmm. where they don't have that experience. And, it, you know, and, that, and that's good. It sounds like it was pretty clear and no, no big deal, but it just got me thinking.
2: You know another thing that I started doing actually after uh, one of my deaf students, I would turn the the stall horn off for my regular students so that they could <laughs> feel that and honestly, you get you're, they, it seemed to me that the deaf students weren't uh, weren 't as afraid of the stalls because <laughs> leading up to it there was no indication except for the buffet they right. so would feel the buffet see when you, i don 't know about you but when that thing starts blaring at me or anything, I get a little nervous you know it 's like <laughs> yeah. a fire alarm going off it 's like, oh my gosh, you know, and i 've done a million stalls." But still, I get a little nervous hearing that thing. <laughs> so if, if you could just cover it up with your students, you know, tape, put tape over whatever. Mm-hmm. Then you know, it's it's kind of it's it's interesting how they'll they'll react a little bit differently. Just like the person who who can't actually hear that. <laughs> but uh, right. cool. But there, there's a, there's about 250 members out there, I think, in the uh, in the Deaf Pilots Association. It might be a little bit more than that. But they have you know international fly-ins. It really mm-hmm. uh, you know started as, as basically for you know you know. F- Flying in and enjoying each other 's company and that uh, it's uh, it's turned into a really great organization and there's uh, the deaf dot uh, com and uh, wheelchair aviators dot com and also the challenge air dot com we'll put that in the, the show notes for absolutely you. great well
1: i have uh Another, I guess all my stories this week are from from work. I have, I've noticed that as we've gotten into this podcast, I pay a lot more attention to the things that go wrong and at work, and uh, or at least because work is my primary flying experience, so. I was uh, I was we had just received the aircraft from another flight crew it was the first flight that we were taking uh, we were going to go down to Savannah for the evening and uh, the flight crew generally when when we show up to an airplane if the other flight crew is still there it's It's often courtesy that the first officer will just assume the responsibility of the other person's post-flight because we have to do our own pre-flight. Well, it's interesting. This particular day, I had gotten down to the aircraft after the crew had left. And I got set up in the airplane, and I was going around doing my pre-flight. And I noticed something odd as I came around the backside of the airplane. I noticed from the rear of the airplane underneath the left main landing gear, there was a puddle. And so as I got over and I I got looking closer to see what was going on, I looked underneath the the wing into the wheel well, and uh, there was a pretty significant leak coming from one of the hydraulic lines, and it was dripping at a quick enough succession to have created a puddle under the airplane after the airplane had only been on the ground for (laughs) probably maximum 10 or 15 minutes in its parking spot. So I got I looked a little bit closer tried to determine where it was coming from it was definitely hydraulic fluid it was coming from one of the one of the uh one of the tubes there and so I got on the on the radio with maintenance and had them come take a look at it and uh, they were They were quite baffled because I guess you know i 'm not sure why they were so confused, but they tried to figure out what was going on there's the long uh, The short end of the story is basically the mechanic had to do some work in changing out these hydraulic lines and Now this had all taken uh, taken place before the captain even showed up to the aircraft, so the captain got on. And I said to her, this is with a scenario that's going on. And the mechanics were working on this. It ended up being about an hour, hour and a half delay before the mechanics finally come up and said to us, you know, everything's fixed. But we're going to have to do a gear swing on this airplane because it's related to the landing gear. And uh, so they ended up swapping (laughs) us to a new airplane. So it was interesting perspective from my side because the flight crew that left the airplane didn't notice this leak. And then I did, and maintenance was dealing with it for quite some time, but I felt a little bit out of the loop, the communication loop because they decided at the end of the hour, hour and a half, that they had to also do this extra procedure. And I thought, well, if they were working on the landing gear, I'm, I was curious why they didn't know that information earlier. So and our, our flight went out about two hours late. Hmm. But for me, it was a good example of why... You need to pay attention really well, and you know we all make mistakes. I'm not actually criticizing the other flight crew that that missed the leak, um, but you have to, you know, the merits of a good pre-flight, even post-flight inspection. And I know post flights aren't generally done so much in the GA world. Um, not a, it's some something that. You see, usually in the training environment, maybe not every day out there on the, in the general aviation flying line, but uh, you know, do a good pre-flight, do a great uh, post-flight, because on post-flight you're not necessarily looking, even for things that you may have broke, but in our airplane it's so big you can hit a bird and not know. If you if it hit the wing you you may not know. Uh, you know, so you've got to make sure that when you're flying these airplanes that you do a good walk around inspection and and that's what i found um so it was interesting to have such a a large uh, a large maintenance item because generally i don't find things that happen to be so big
2: like that
3: i uh, so- you go ahead, Carl. I have, a G- I have a GA story to tell after the- so
2: that. that was a, I was going to add the same as far as GA, as far as doing the post-flight. I, I think that's a, a terrific example of, yeah, you need to pay attention. I've right. actually walked away from my airplane and didn't do a post-flight, went to get something to eat, and I turn around and say, gee, that's funny. That red beacon, that's that's mine. Wait a minute! <laughs> I sort of ran out. And had to turn the the master switch off because our our master switch is a position where a lot of times we hit it on the way out the door. So the what I do for now on, I always always no matter if I'm going to stop for like 15 minutes, just look at the airplane, walk around, do mm-hmm. a post flight. And what I'd like to hear is from Rick to see what you know his his experience has been with doing post flights on a on his GA aircraft.
3: Yeah, the, the the story specific story is sort of a big learning lesson because I essentially flew the long cross country of my training solo, um, and and after the flight discovered something that I could have caught earlier and I didn't, and um, which was basically so it was uh, Norwood to um, I think it was it was probably Orange then maybe it was it might have been Orange or Keen and then down to Groton and then back to Norwood that was the triangle and. I, I, I'm a photographer, so I brought my camera with me and, and um, took a bit of a break at uh, uh, Groton to, you know, just to walk around and, you know, make a few phone calls. You know, you're, you're learning. It's a long solo and you're, you're thrilled that, you know, you're excited and that you're doing this. And I took some pictures of the plane. Well, I got back and I was putting the plane away at Norwood and I noticed um, kind of a trickle on the cowl of a very sort of a dark fluid, um, you know, it looked oily. Uh, you know, but I don't know. And it was a, it was a it was a trickle line, a single line. Um, and so I put the plane away, and I mentioned to the to the flight school that I'd seen this. And and at the time, it was the, the comments were very much like, "Oh, I'll check that out." And my guess is it might have they had some reason why that might make sense to them. And i have forgotten what the explanation was at the time. And then I think the next day heard that that plane had been had been pulled off. Off the line, essentially, for because there was a crack in the cylinder, hmm. and the, but the co- the interesting and scary thing, and that a huge lesson for me is the pictures I took at Groton of that plane sitting on the ramp had that trickle on them. So oh, wow. yeah, so I didn't see it, <laughs> but I took, but I but I could have seen it, and I and my camera saw it, but I didn't notice. And you know, you're a oh, wow. Yeah, so I got very you know, and there was no indication that anything was wrong, and I don't think it was big. Whatever was leaking. Would be would have become big, but it was not a. It was flyable. In fact, they flew it somewhere. You know, they they it was they got a whatever you have to get the exception to to be able to ferry it to get it repaired, but. It was, not, it was not catastrophic, but I don't know when it would have turned catastrophic. And, mm-hmm. I, and I don't know when it started, but I do know that, at that on the ground there, that picture had it there. And so, I, so for me, it was like, okay, look really closely. Do those pre and post flights, you know, when you're, when you're stopping somewhere. And, um, you know, don't treat them as just sort of matter of fact because it's not the first launch of the day for you. It's, you know, it's another chance to be fairly meticulous about going over the plane. And, you know, big lesson. So mm-hmm. that's my story. That's that great. Was great. It's funny you found it on the camera after the yeah. fact. <laughs> yeah, like oh gee, should have caught that, and here it is, you know. Uh, so yeah, and that, yeah, it was it was a it was a couple. It was a day later, and I went oh, and I, and I had some distance from it, so I didn't freak out too much. Mm-hmm. But I, but, yeah, it was it was a good one. I, I'll never forget that. As I fly, I'm looking much closer now.
1: Mm-hmm. We had uh, it, it wouldn't really tie up into the post flight pre flight, but. You know, Carl was talking about walking away from the airplane and the beacon being running. We've had, a, I guess, we've had a couple of instances at our at our employer where some folks have left the airplane with an engine running. And uh, Oops. you would think, gosh, that's kind of a it's kind of a major thing. You would you would hope to have noticed. It's interesting. <laughs> the other day, we got to our destination and the captain shut the uh, shut the engine down. And we were going through our post-flight checklist. And he looks over at me and he points he points to our, our engine indications. And he goes, you see this engine is still running. And we looked up. The switch was in the off position. We have uh, overhead switches, Rick, for on, off, and start. Uh-huh. And uh, so the switch was in the off position. Now this jet is particularly designed that if the thrust levers are not in the idle position, that it will not send a shutdown command to the engine for obvious reasons. If it's not in idle, nobody wants an engine to shut down.
3: Right.
1: So we he pulled the thrust lever, you know, back, which it was already in the in the um it was already in the idle position, but maybe, you know, he's like, Well, maybe it's just out of hair. So so he tapped it and it we could see the engine sort of surging shutting down and kind of starting up and shutting down Mm. as this went on probably for about four or five minutes while we looked at it and uh so we decided okay we'll just go ahead and reach up put the switch back into the on position wait a moment and then put it back in the off position and once we put it in off the engine did shut down Mm. but it made me remember the story that we've heard a few times of you know how you would think to yourself how can you walk away from an airplane with a running engine Mm. And you, you know, sometimes you're going through these procedures, and you think you saw something, because we do three, four, five flights a day. Sometimes it's hard to determine, did I just do that checklist, or was that from three flights ago?
0: Yeah.
1: So, so you, when you get through doing things so many times in a day, sometimes you do miss things. So it was interesting to me to see, you know what, now I understand how you could potentially leave an airplane with a running engine if that switch isn't behaving properly.
2: Right.
3: Right, I get it. That's amazing.
2: And easy to do on an airplane that has an engine way, way
3: behind Way in the back, exactly. You can't hear it.
2: You can't
1: hear it, or you can't (laughs) see it spinning necessarily like a
3: propeller. Right. Wow. Yeah. (laughs) Watch that.
1: Another another thing you would find on your post-flight inspection. Hey, wait a minute. Why is this engine still running?
2: <laughs> oh, my God. That just remind, I had a student actually leave an engine running and mm-hmm. jump out and go to the bathroom and come back. Oh, geez. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I was like, oh, my God. Uh, he, I, I thought he had forgotten. He did not. He knew how to shut it down. It's kind wow. of obvious with a, with a big engine in front of you. It's it's a little easier to remember that. So did, well, did he <laughs> but, did he have a a good reason good enough reason to tell you why he thought that was a safe idea? Uh no no he uh, he he did not and uh, we just but it it goes along with hey you know you look at something right in front of you and you think oh gee I'm just gonna park this and go just like I do with my car you know I'm gonna I'm gonna put the parking brake on run inside get something from inside come mm-hmm. back just let the engine keep running mm-hmm. and uh, it's a little bit you don't know, see how that transfer that's a negative transfer to, yeah, to learning how to fly an airplane yeah. but you really need I mean boy you know look at look at all the times you've looked at something like you were saying and and thought you saw it but you didn't you know. Mm-hmm. Just mm-hmm. like you were talking about shutting an engine down, you have to verify it in with. Don't just flick a switch right. and think it worked. You know, make sure you right. look to see if it actually happened. Mm-hmm. That was right. good learning. That was good. Good. Yeah, it was good interesting. I
1: had never seen that in six years of flying that aircraft. That was the very first time that it ever happened. So yeah, we were both. both yeah, both kind
2: of looking at each other, going, "My, that." That guy doesn't want to shut down. That's interesting. <laughs> you know, it's interesting because also uh, trying to shut an engine down, uh, sometimes it. Uh, we've had engines where they wouldn't shut down. And, uh, but, you know, I was flying a Tomahawk one day and it just mm-hmm. would not shut off. Uh, I'm sorry, I was a Warrior. And we had a problem with, you know, something in the carburetor. And eventually we had to put the fuel selector to off. But, you know, as you know, when you put the fuel selector to off, there's still fuel in that line. Yeah, it's not instant. So it kept running and running and running and running, and then finally the engine quit. Mm -hmm. But that took a while. So there's a, you know, that brings up another point we don't have to talk about today. But think about in your airplane, if you couldn't turn off the engine using the traditional methods, how would you turn it off? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Something good to review Mm -hmm. because it does happen. Right. Uh, Carl, we were talking a little bit about
1: different types of airspace, and you said you were having uh, some, oh, s- yeah. some interesting questions, yeah. I guess, about yeah. airspeeds in different airspace, like airspeed requirements and, and uh, well, in different I, airspace.
2: I just want to mention one because this comes up. Often okay and and don 't feel bad if you you don 't remember this one because i 've flown with you know c f i s who've been flying for years and i 've flown with Czech airmen and i 've actually thought about it myself, but there are certain speed limitations okay that we need to know what i 'm going to talk about specifically is class C airspace. Uh, a lot of times at work i 'm used to flying into class Bravo. Mm-hmm. with my small airplane i 'm flying usually in class Delta, so I understand that I need to slow down to 200 knots in Class Delta within five miles, four nautical, five statute, and 2,500 feet mm-hmm. of the airport. Well, and that 's you know above airport elevation. Well, one, how about flying into Class Charlie? What is the air, what is the airspeed? It's the same. The same, right? It's the same within five miles or four nautical, five statute, four nautical, and twenty-five hundred feet you have to slow to 200. Mm-hmm. And you have to keep that speed also on, on takeoff. Now, in some people, I, I think that, I haven't flown the Cirrus yet, but I, I guess there's <laughs> an issue with the Cirrus. Is that correct?
3: Uh, no, Rick? no, actually no, not. Okay. Maybe, right. the, maybe the 22, but not the 20.
2: Oh, okay. All right. Well, if you're coming in, I, you know, I, I do this with my students. I have them do really fast approaches. And if we want to do a bunch of approaches and just keep, you know, banging them out, we'll do some really fast ones. And uh, certain airplanes are really slick that they can get up there close to 200 the other thing is when you start transitioning to a faster airplane Mm -hmm. you don't need to slow down so a lot of times what what folks will will make the mistake of and i know a lot of the airlines are hiring now so this is for some of those folks moving on to faster airplanes is that you don't need to slow down until you're that five miles out and you're 2500 feet above the ground that that's when you need to slow down so you know just just remember that i actually had uh had that happen on a flight where, where I had uh, somebody representing the FAA in the jump seat who uh, was getting ready to bust me for uh, f- for speeding, and uh, I kind of had to pull out my FARs and, and remind them mm-hmm. that this is actually how it is. So that's that's something just to remind yourself. I do. I'm not going to get into the whole Class C airspace, but yeah, I no problem. I do have a whole explanation and, and uh, of Class C and a practical guide to Class C on my website expertaviator.com, and uh, you can take a look at that there. And I have it. It took me about a half. Hour 45 minutes to go through that, but it's a, it has all the symbols and all the air speed, air speed restrictions, etc. Mm-hmm. So just just remember that.
1: And uh, kind of a, a good reminder is that if you know, if you folks, uh, if our listeners are out there flying outside of the U.S., and I'm not going to go into specific airspace, you know, speeds and dimensions in other countries, but uh, you know, operating in Canada and operating in Mexico, you have to make sure that when you're not but you know, when you are flying in a different country, that you make sure you know what their requirements are because they are not the same as the U.S. And just as a quick example, most Canadian airspace for Charlie and Delta is their, their 200 not requirement instead of being four statute nautical miles and 2,500 feet AGL, it's 10 statute or 10 nautical miles and 3,000 feet AGL. So good point. You know. When I'm going into Canada, I have to remember, and sometimes I actually have to tell the people I'm flying with, "Hey, we you know, you've got to be, you've got to slow down this far out." So, make sure if you're operating outside of the country, you're going on a trip to Mexico or Canada or even somewhere else in the world, that you that you verify what their airspace dimensions and speed requirements are. Good point.
2: Do you say do you, this? You know, we have to slow to 200 knots, a day <laughs> i guess so <laughs> especially when you're flying to canada boy the uh, it's a good point you brought that's uh, good that you brought that up uh you know it's a good reminder for me so next time i go in there i don't i won't bust that but
1: yeah I, I mean i see a lot of guys and i think we just don't think about it as clearly but i do see a lot of a lot of pilots i fly with that forget the demand you know that there's different airspace out there uh so that, for some reason, is just one thing that's always stuck in my head And for Canada is those particular speed requirements. You have to be slow a lot farther out. Yes. Right. So, well, I've got one more flying story that I can recall from this week, and it has to do with shooting a Category 2 ILS, which... Doesn't necessarily mean that because you not you don't shoot CAT2 ILSs uh, that it won't apply. And I know Rick, you're you're going to be starting instrument soon, yeah. but um, an interesting perspective on flying an ILS to minimums. This particular one was a category two ILS. And the minimums were 130 feet above touchdown zone elevation. So a standard Category um, 1 ILS will bring you to 200 feet above the ground. This Cat 2 brought us to 130 feet above the ground. So where, you know, in the jet we're flying faster, number one, and we're flying these approaches to lower cloud conditions and generally poor, poor visibility. This one I was doing again was in Canada, and it was at nighttime. And right about 140 feet or so, I started to see the approach lights. And at 130 feet, I could see the runway lights. Now, it was interesting because it was nighttime and it was raining. Hmm. And what do you know? As soon as we broke out, I could see the lights, but I couldn't make out a general reference and depth perception to the runway because it was wet and it was nighttime. And I, I see this a lot, actually, you may even see it yourself when you're driving. Sometimes after a rainstorm, it's hard to make out the distinguishing marks on a road that's wet under certain conditions. And it was a similar effect. We broke out at 130 feet, the lights are blaring in my eyes and I'm, I'm, I'm disoriented. I'm like, I can't see the runway. When am I supposed to flare? So we got a little bit closer and we eased it on in. And we touched down, and we had a very, very small, I think it was a quarter to a half a mile visibility, so taxiing was even difficult. But, you know, why I'm telling this story is I want folks to know that even when you're out there flying an ILS, Category 1, Category 2, whatever you are, just to remember that once you break out of those clouds, never forget that it might not be as easy as clear in a million as soon as you reach the below of the deck under the cloud deck you still may be having that half mile visibility or ground fog or rain rain is very disorienting and a general aviation aircraft with that propeller spinning around and shooting that water Mm. on the way it the way it projects off the windscreen can give you different effects of whether or not you're climbing or descending so it is very disorienting Mm. to go into an actual approach. And I just wanted, you know, folks to think, keep this in mind when you're out there, that you're not necessarily going to be seeing the foggles off at 200 feet standard, hey, look, there's a clean runway. Right. You know, you may be disoriented. And if you are, by all means, go ahead and go around. Now, in this particular instance with Category 2 ILSs, in the in our Uh, airline business the first officer will fly the approach so that they are focused on the instruments and the captain will be heads up so they're the ones that land the aircraft and make that transition and it's a good example why because as soon as he said landing I have the aircraft when the runway was in sight I was disoriented because I was making that transition the lights blinded me and I couldn't make that depth perception so it's a good example of the you know a crew environment and why we actually use that policy
2: Good point. Good point, Len.
1: Have you had any chance, you know, any exper- experiences, Carl, it, flying instrument approaches and just you know, y- being a little bit disoriented or s- having some strange optical illusions like that? Maybe even GA with the yeah, rain. I was
2: going to say the last time was actually GA mm-hmm. that I, I got a little disoriented coming in, and uh, the lights at the airport weren't uh, either. Some of them weren't working very well, and I, right about the point where I was, I decided to flare. And, uh, you know, you know, you have the landing light, and it's pointing out in front of you, and the rain's coming down. And, uh, you know, like you said, you, your depth perception goes that that landing light is reflecting onto the runway. So sometimes, and this kind of helped me out, and I'm sure uh, everybody here has done this, is practice landing without the light on. Well, mm-hmm. I turn the light off, and that actually helped me uh, with my depth perception. That's where you, when you come in, you say, okay, we're not going to make a great landing. We just want to get the main wheels That's on right.
1: first. That's right. No <laughs> That's, points for
2: no. <laughs> no points for style. That's what I usually
1: say. When it's bad weather, there's no points for style. Just put it in the touchdown zone. That's all we need to do. <laughs> you
2: got it. And, and you know, if you, you pull the power back, and eventually it's gonna, it's gonna touch something. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I, I always think back to some of my friends that fly flow planes, and they, you know, on the glassy water, boy, that's, that's really tough. So you know, I always think to myself, boy, I think I have it tough. They must really have it tough because they have no reference at all, and they just right. have to. You just keep on descending really slowly, and eventually you're gonna see the runway. You're gonna touch the runway. But uh, yeah, it's it's uh, that. And if it's raining that hard, a lot of times you're thinking, "Gee, should I really be flying this day?" Mm -hmm. But uh, but it can happen. And there's a lot of little airports out there that they're. You know, I used to fly out of a place where our lights, our landing or runway lights, were mason jars with little lights underneath them, and (laughs) and a lot of times they would blow out. You know, and so. (laughs) But it worked for this guy's airport. Mm But you know you're landing there at night, and uh, you're like, okay, where's the paved part? Where's the grass part? Right. And am I going to go and get bogged down? And that's you just you're sitting there, just very nervous. And part of that is your nervousness is after you stop the plane. Now, how do I get back mm-hmm. off this runway and get back to the terminal mm-hmm. and over back to the you know the FBO? But uh, good point, Lynn. I like it. I'm glad you brought that up.
1: Yes, it's been disorienting. You know, a couple of times we had another instance where and it was not as much a cloud deck issue as it was a little bit of visibility and we broke out of the clouds and all of a sudden we're in this moderate rainstorm. I think this time it was Indianapolis and um I'm this was my flight. And I looked over again. I said to, uh, I verbalize a lot of things to the captains that I'm flying with. So they know what my train of thought is in a, a different situations. And I said, listen, it's raining pretty hard. If I get into the flare or get closer to the runway, and I'm not comfortable with my sight picture, I'm going to go around because it was raining pretty hard. We have windshield wipers on, on the jet, but that's a whole story for another day, because just the fact that those wipers are out there flailing around in front of you, that that sometimes is disorienting to me you've got rain blowing off the windscreen you've got this object flopping around out at high speed trying to clear you clear the rain off um you know so it it's there's a lot of things that on an instrument approach besides the the actual mechanics of flying it that can be a challenge
2: yes that's for sure something to look forward to rick when you start oh yeah Yeah. (laughs) sign me up yeah exactly
3: (laughs) (laughs) On yeah, my check ride, there was the, the, the closest story I have to that is there was, a, there was a thunderstorm in the distance. It wasn't the final check ride. We ended up not completing the check ride, but the uh, the DE sort of said, "Okay, don't pay attention to that thunderstorm straight ahead. <laughs> We're on the downwind. Because, uh, your job is just to just to land the plane like you normally would, and then we'll we'll figure it out after that." And that's what we did. So. <laughs> Nothing to
2: see here. <laughs>
3: exactly. Move along. Move along. Move <laughs> along.
0: Our picks of the week.
1: That's great. Oh great. Well speaking of weather, uh, this will transition into our picks of the week and this is where the co hosts on the on the podcast here, we come up with a product or service, whether it's a website, an application, anything that's aviation related that we'd like to share with you that we found useful, whether we are, you know, it's a new a new service to us or we've been using it for a while now. And Rick, since we're talking about weather, your pick of the week goes right along with this. What do you, what do you got for us today?
3: Yeah, this is um this is a website that I use um uh, about three days out just to start to get some detail you know so i've used general weather sites for for a longer range you know 10 day whatever and start to zero in on when i might fly and when i get to within three days i find this site that i'm going to walk through real quick to be pretty useful and um Generally, when I show it to people, they've never heard of it. So I got this tip from uh, from a friend, and I guess I'm going to pass it on here. Um, I I sent you guys the link. If you want to follow along, you can. Otherwise, I'll just describe what we're seeing. But it's, um, and I can tell it to you, the short link is, and we'll put the full URL in the enhanced content portion of the Mm -hmm. feed. You should be able to click on it right now, actually. Um, But it's www.usairnet.com. Usairnet.com. And when you go to that page, I rarely hit this home page anymore because I've bookmarked it deeper, but that's the easiest URL to give you. Mm-hmm. Um, you get there, and at, at the top, there's a menu, uh, home, weather, hang gliding, hot air ballooning, all sorts of stuff that I've never explored. But if you click on weather uh, at the top menu, um, which I'm loading now, you should get a, a variety of weather options. And I'm, I'm not getting it yet, but I don't know if you guys have it, but, um, wow, this is very slow. But on the left... Um, uh, on the left rail, there should be an aviation weather um, site. And I don't know if you're following along. Yeah, I, I'm looking yeah. at it. Basically, if you click on the top link under aviation weather, you get you get brought to a a, a page that says aviation weather report and forecast. Um, and the first thing you do is, is select a region. So I'm going to just do my airport because I know it. So I'm going to go to Massachusetts under select a region and say go. And then... Um, when that loads, I'm going to pick Norwood and uh, let me go there directly because it's. Uh, I'm having. I think probably my Skype bandwidth is pulling a lot of this. But when you get to the airport you've chosen, and I don't know if you've if you've followed along now and are looking at the mm-hmm. visual display, but it's it's a pretty cool graphical display of three days of weather um, that's coming at you. But there are um, columns and um, and rows of graphically displayed, um, you know. Uh, Weather data. So there is uh, cloud cover. There is ceiling height references. There's uh, wind. And you get, uh, I think it's at every two hour um, kind of blocks of, uh, is it every two or three hours, Len? You're the only one looking at it because for some reason (laughs) I I can't get it to the right. Let's see. It
1: looks like it's it's in three hour blocks.
3: Yes. Yeah. And so, um, you know, in those three hour blocks, you get. you know you get you get a pretty good breakdown it looks like mine's going to load now so let me go there cuz i can describe it more accurately yeah there we go finally okay so you got 3 day just about 3 days out and it it adds those 3 hour blocks as you go you know closer to your flight day you know the first row is is sky conditions generally uh temperatures over that you know, in three-hour chunks uh, is is a row. Then wind direction, you can kind of get a general picture for what the wind's going to do. Um, and then the wind speeds, how that's going to ride, you know, higher or lower over that three-day period. Um, cloud bases, um, visibility. So pretty quickly you can get... You know, uh for I'm looking at Norwood now and obviously for me Wednesday in this particular graph, Wednesday morning at two AM, things are things are not quite as good. It's mostly cloudy visibility's down to five miles in mist and the ceilings at a thousand feet. And that's that's all really you know, pretty nicely displayed here. You also get the chance of precip, thunderstorm chances, uh, humidity, dew point, and the dew point spread are all depicted graphically. And I just think this is a really nice um, website to quickly get a handle on the the short-term forecast before you get into the more detailed weather, um, you know, prep for your flights. And so I use this very often.
2: That's great. Yeah, I just pulled it up myself, and I do. I love the graphics, and yeah. uh, it's very colorful. And you're right; you could get a quick. You just have to look, and you can quickly know what's going to happen that next. Yeah, couple it's days.
3: pretty. Yeah, it's pretty obvious. The ceilings drop. The visibility drops. The you know it, you can get a pretty good handle on it quickly, just even visually. And and uh, yeah, so I, I I recommend this. It's usairnet.com, and then you can uh, navigate to the aviation forecast and find your. Uh, local airport.
1: How have you found its accuracy? I mean, weather is weather, but I mean, in general, the forecasting model has been pretty, pretty consistent pretty, for you. Pretty
3: good. Yeah. For me, you know, if I'm watching for me, you know, being a low time pilot, I'm watching, you know, wind speeds, I, you know, when they've got, yeah, it's been pretty accurate. I think when when they've got them up, that's that's a day. I, I mean, I use it now to tell friends. You know, okay, Saturday going to be windy, and mm-hmm. and and you know that'll sort of show up on general forecasts, but not always. And you know, I think the cutoff on weather. dot com is um, like twenty miles an hour or more. Maybe is when they say windy. Uh, below that, they don't even say windy, and so you know, I can get some a little more. A little more detail. So no, I think it's very accurate. And uh, we in my job we do some outside videotaping and we use this now as a way to kind of get a sense for whether you know we should shift the date for shooting because it's pretty it's been pretty accurate. So that's well, awesome. Yeah, it's a like cool it. little thing. Yeah. I've got it bookmarked on my iPad and you know it's it's a great tool. <laughs> great. great.
1: Carl, tell us what you've got for us today.
2: Uh actually this one that I have today is kind of a treat for Rick. I hope I, uh, I'm going to be reviewing the uh, pilot's guide to the airports of historic Massachusetts, and that's a, a book that just came out by uh, John Fisk. And the book is actually available at his website, johnfisk.com, and that's uh, John F i s k e .com. This book is uh, it has some little kernels of information, uh, not so much for someone who's flying in and out, even though it does mention the f- uh, facilities such as the runway and the tower. Frequencies and and the ATIS, but uh, but it's it's more interesting in that you can learn something about your local airport and uh, and some history. So as I was thumbing through this, I have three things that I'd like to share with you that I found out. There's now now Rick. There's an airport. It's in Bear. Is that how you say it? B a r r e b a r r e. Yeah. Bear Plains, Tanner Hiller Airport. Now Good. now this is I actually started my training at Wilkes Barre Airport uh. in Pennsylvania which shares the name of the person that this airport is named after it's uh Tanner Hiller Bear Bear Plains that's the name of the town and for uh, those of you into into history mm-hmm. uh Bear Isaac Bear was actually uh the person who founded the or coined the term the Sons of Liberty who uh, actually were the ones that were involved in the tea party or the tea uh, uh the tea party in the boston many many wow. years ago so Wow. I thought that was interesting to, to find. That's the type of information that you can you can discover. And so what I decided to do is try to figure out if I can if I can teach uh, Rick anything about Norwood. <laughs> and uh, one thing that I discovered is is that uh, Norwood. By the way, that's a big airport. It's uh, it seems yeah. pretty busy, I should say. And uh, it seems like it's a I assume like a reliever type airport for the Boston area for yeah. uh, uh, general aviation. Some but, jets, I'm assuming.
3: Yes, yeah, some. But yes, definitely. Definitely, but less so than um, than Hanscom, which which is Hanscom, definitely right, big right. time. Oh, so the, of yeah. of the two, it feels smaller, but it, it's a good size airport. Yeah.
2: Right, and that actually was built in, in 1930, and, uh, mm. and the biggest tenant there, and I didn't know that, that this uh, company was around, was Wiggins. I don't mm. know if you know who Wiggins is, but Wiggins mm-hmm. Airways, they, uh, they're an FBO, but they also have a, a large uh, cargo mm-hmm. uh, company, which uh, flies uh, cargo for FedEx. They have a contract with FedEx and flies all around the northeast there. Mm-hmm. But, oh, wow. Uh, and that actually was, Norwood was a, a naval training base during World War II. Oh, I'm
3: I'm going to order this book right away. Uh, This is great. Uh, I'm I'm excited. No, really. Wow. I mean, it's an interesting—I'll just say little things I know about the airport, but I bet, you know, are in here. There's a wetlands right near it that I don't know exactly how that's defined. But as a result, they can't use some chemicals on the runway surfaces Mm -hmm. to melt ice. They have to wait for solar, you know, solar melting because they can't. And and I learned that, of course, by being grounded a couple of times. So there's a lot going on there, and it also has flooded— At least seriously once, no, twice in the last uh, five years since I've been flying there, where a lot of the runways went underwater, and that's because there's a river there, and you know all the stuff. But I'm gonna, I can't wait to read this. Very cool.
2: it's great. It doesn't ha- It's not as extensive on the knowledge. This is what happens when you write something about history. Yeah. You'll, you'll get people that say, I want, there's not enough information, and there's people that say there's too much. I'm the type of person that loves to know everything about the history behind an airport. What he has done is made a one or two page summary. So I'm the person that says, boy, there's not enough for me. But what All he right. does, he puts links in the back of the uh, website or uh, uh, the bibliography and tells you where, uh, where he got his information. Oh, okay, cool. Um, and you were saying you actually flew over there to Plymouth. And here's another little tidbit inf- of information. That's yeah. uh, actually where the Massachusetts State Police Air Wing is actually located. Is at Plymouth Airport. And oh, I just okay. discovered that while we were talking. So that that's the type of really neat information you'll, you'll find in his book there. But cool. uh, John Fitch just came out, and uh, and I would suggest that I'd recommend uh, the, the Pilot's Guide to the Airports of Historic Massachusetts. Again, for a nice historical uh, background on each of these airports, it'll make you want to look into the airport
3: more <laughs> and the history behind it. Very cool. Thanks. That's great. great. (laughs) You're welcome.
1: (laughs) Well, my picks of the week, there's actually two of them because they're both similar in the same category. But do either of you guys use an electronic logbook software?
2: Yes. Uh, you yeah, do. an online one, and I'm thinking of moving to Log 10. So I want okay. to hear about which this. one do you use, Rick? I use Log 10. Log 10. Okay. So
3: Log 10 Pro. And, and for me, I'll just say it's way it's overkill. But it's for you overkill. guys, you know, <laughs> because I know it does so much more than I ever needed for. But I bet from your point of view, it's it's huge.
1: I haven't even tapped into the the amount of abilities that it has. I I and the reason this goes into having two parts is because I used to use Logbook Pro. Now the only difference is. Logbook Pro is for the PC, Log10 Pro mm. is for the Mac. Uh, and, but, and they're both great pieces of software. So I was going to suggest both of those, uh, you know, the Logbook Pro for our PC listeners and Log10 Pro for our Mac listeners. Mm. Both of those pieces of software do have an iPad, iPhone, iPod mm. application. I think I just saw this, come, this last week that Log10 Pro is coming out with an Android, uh, Log10. Book Pro itself. I'm on their website and I don't see anything for for Android, but they do have some uh, Logbook Pro PDA companions for Palm Pilots and some other handheld devices. And what I use it for, and what I'm sure most people use it for, is tracking flight time. And uh, you know, like I said, I used Log10 Pro for probably about f- six years when before i started the airline before i made my also made my transition into from pcs to Macs, and it's a great piece of software and then just this last christmas i made the transition into log 10 pro for the mac because i no longer operate pcs and i have both of the mobile applications on my phone and usually what i do is at the end of the day or after each flight i'll input the information in there and then it syncs over wi-fi connection and with your computer so that your current you're always up to date so you can make an entry into your mobile device and sync it with your computer or make an entry into your computer and then sync it to your mobile device so it's always up to date. And there's Hmm. a lot of fun things that these these pieces of software can track all kinds of things like your flight time, your currency, day landings, night landings, instrument currency. One really nice aspect of both pieces of software is an automatic FAA 8710 form generator. Hmm. All you have to do is click one button and boom – you can print it out, and everything as far as flight times is all the categories are filled in so that you don't have to page through that logbook like we've done previous, you know, for certificates and, and check rides and add up. I need uh, how much night solo complex airplane time did I was I supposed to put it so you don't have to keep track of those things? Um, and there's, you know, there's, it, you've got your total time. Uh, with some of these softwares even keep track of all the. The distance that you've flown and i just want to kind of give a fun number here but this log 10 pro is showing that in the last 15 years i have flown 713 707 000 miles wow oh wow which doesn't include local flights but you know you can you, there's fun little stats like this that it will show that's cool yeah. and um so it's a great piece of software
3: I've built a couple of – it has things that are like smart folders, kind of right. like on the left there you can create. So you can sort by anything and have it keep track of it. So I've – like I know the hours per the, – the few different planes I rent. I know right. how many hours I have in each plane. I know how many – in type. Uh, you know, you can do all that. And you can do any, any number of sorting you want. It's pretty fun to play with that, especially yeah, when you've got a lot of hours like you guys do.
2: So you can do like category class. Mm-hmm. And, and those you can you sort by all those type, type of criteria. Yeah, t- but,
3: t- t- tail number. I mean, you oh, know, okay. Yeah, you can say that specific actual plane. I've been and I've done this many you know hours or whatever. Mm-hmm.
2: And that's so like actually, go ahead. I was going to say if you're keeping current, say IFR, both helicopter and aircraft. Uh, that that's something you could sort using this this software, or say tailwheel uh, night landing, single engine, and then multi-engine night and day those type of landings you can keep right. track of for those folks that transition like like Len and I do back mm-hmm. and forth to general aviation aircraft. Mm-hmm. You know I'm not actually current at night in single engine. Yeah, I'm not. Like, and I was like, oh my gosh, you know I better go go out there and make some landings. But I fly them all the time. Mm-hmm. It's just not at night. So right. that's what warned me and say, hey, listen, you need to you need to get some landings. Mm-hmm. Instead of me having to go out there each time, and the the one thing though, Len, I have a question about mm-hmm. is uh, is the ability to back up your data because I did use Logbook Pro years ago mm-hmm. and I put all my information in and then actually lost it and uh, this is going back some years now and I am assuming there's some type of automatic. Yeah, they both uh,
1: back up. They both have well, not necessarily automatic, but they both have options to export or back up on closing. Uh, and usually what I do is I keep them in a separate file or store them on an external drive or even in Dropbox, somewhere that I have that's not necessarily on the computer itself. But, there, yeah, there's definitely, in fact, when I made the transition, and, again, there's there's no rhyme or reason. There's nothing wrong with Log10 or Logbook Pro. I just didn't have a PC anymore. And the folks at Log10 Pro took my Logbook Pro file, mm-hmm. and they converted it for me and sent it over to me. And all I had to do was load it in. Cool to uh, you know to the new software and and I was up and running but yes there's definitely options for for exporting and saving uh, and I actually like I want to go back to what Rick had to say about keeping track of time in specific airplanes that's really handy because if you're renting an airplane it's not uncommon for an FBO to have a requirement that you have to have so much time in type within the last 90 days to be or even some of them are 30 days or 60 days maybe even 90 days but if you haven't rented or flown that airplane from that FBO in x amount of time sometimes they require you to go out and do another checkup so it's a good you know it's a good way to keep track of that
3: yeah definitely
2: good point good point yeah, uh, and that's interesting. You said that because I went to uh, go rent a, a multi-engine piston. Turns out I don't have enough multi-engine piston time, <laughs> and uh, so that I have to go get some more of that time in there. It's all been wow. uh, turbine. It's all turbine time, multi.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah. You know, so that's uh, and this would actually have warned me of that, or because I had to go back and figure this out. And this this software, I could just pull that kind of a report up. I'm, I'm sure within minute, a minute or less, you right? Know, just, just pull it right up. Yeah, very I handy. Known. Very yeah. handy tools. That's good. I'm going to try it. Now that you, Len, you've convinced me, I'm going to give it a shot. Yeah, there's and, that and nice. I'll, and... I'll be calling you if I have any problems. That's fine. <laughs> and, and
1: just be warned, though. I haven't even scratched the surface. I was pretty good at Logbook Pro, but Log10 Pro, I haven't even figured out all the same all the same <laughs> ins and outs of it. So I definitely have to go through the user manual myself. <laughs> the After Landing checklist.
2: All right, folks, well,
1: uh, I'm going to give everybody here an opportunity to let you know how you can get in touch with them. Carl, if folks want to want to get in contact with you, uh, what's your website and Twitter, and what do you got for us?
2: Uh, the best way to get in touch with me is at expertaviator.com, and if you want to send me an email or a question, you can uh, click on the link that says Ask Expert Aviator, or on Twitter, my handle is expertaviator, expertaviator on Twitter, and I hope to hear from you. Excellent. And Rick, how could folks get a hold of you?
3: Yeah, a couple of ways. I think Twitter is probably the easiest one to say. It's just rfelty uh, is the at rfelty at Twitter. Um, and uh, YouTube channel is YouTube uh, slash, forward slash rdfelty. Um, had to add a D in there. I'm not sure who the other rfelty is, but I'm sure, <laughs> I'm sure he's a wonderful gentleman. Um, so, yeah, rdfelty on YouTube. And then the only other, I have a blog where I've begun sort of focusing that more on uh, aviation. That's uh, at rickfelty.com. Okay, you great. Can go there.
1: Great. And if you guys are interested, you can check out uh, my information is the is my website and well, I'm also the Pilot report on Twitter and Facebook. And as always for the uh, for the Stuck Mike Aviation podcast, you can reach us at stuckmike.com, stuck correction, stuckmikeavcast.com and we are Stuck Mike Avcast on Twitter and on Facebook. So uh, it's been a real pleasure recording this episode number three for you guys. This is uh, Len with the Stuck Mike Avcast, wishing you guys all clear skies and calm winds. Take care, everybody.
0: Pasta Production.